Father, we pray that uh, you would speak now. We pray that you would open your word to us, that we might know you in your word, that we might love you and know what it is to have genuine faith, to follow you as we ought. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Well, in his uh, letter to the Romans, Paul has begun by diagnosing the problem faced not just by his church, but all of humanity. Like any good doctor, Paul understands that one cannot have the proper cure applied without knowing what the real problem is. And so he's been explaining to his church that all people have a serious sin problem. We all could know God, we all could follow him, but instead we have exchanged the truth of God for the lies of this world and loved sin and idolatry more than our Heavenly Father. We are all in this state of sin, separated from God and through our willful rejection of him, storing up wrath for ourselves. This is something that all people inherently know, and so no one has an excuse for a sin-filled life. Now, once the diagnosis is made, before the cure is able to be presented, we typically have the rebuttal, right? Like the person whose family urges him to go to the doctor only to be told, no, 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 I'm fine. My leg, I promise you, is meant to bend 90 degrees from, from the knee. That, that's how it works. It's only a scratch. Give me a Band-Aid. I'll be just fine. So in this portion of our letter, Paul is anticipating the rebuttal. Surely not me, Paul. I'm not the one in sin here. I don't have a sin problem. It's those people over there. They're the ones with the, the broken leg. I'll be just fine. And so Paul at this point is specifically anticipating such a rebuttal from the Jewish members of the church in Rome. Remember here that this church was a mixed congregation of Gentile and Jew, which is why Paul addresses both groups so often. He anticipates rebuttals from the the Jewish Christians in the form of their religious DNA their religious knowledge, and their religious habits. And he interacts with these objections to show that they do not address the real problem. And that's what we're going to look at today. We're going to take these objections seriously, and then we'll look at the problem with them. And how what we actually need is is something far deeper than what they provide. And while Paul is thinking particularly of the Jewish population in the Roman church, I think we will find that much of what he has to say could be applied directly to even us here in our church in Windsor, Ontario. Some of these objections might sound familiar to us if we simply replace the word Jew in this passage with Christian. And we do that so that we can see that the rebuttals that they offer are not good enough for them, and they are certainly not enough for us either. And so let's start with these objections. Let's start with their rebuttals. What are they? Well, let's take a look at verse 17. There we read, 
But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God, let's stop there for a second. In this verse, we have two of the three objections that we're going to see. The first is their religious DNA. To call yourself a Jew, it meant laying claim to be a member of God's people. As were their ancestors, they were a part of the tribe that God chose above all other peoples. It meant being part of the right religious group. They also appealed to their religious knowledge, saying, relying on the Lord, on the law. These people have been given the law of Moses and have had centuries of instruction on what is true and good and beautiful. For these reasons, they boast in God. He is ours and we are his, they say. That's just the way it is. He chose us, so there. Completing the picture are verses 19 through 20, which tell us about their religious habits. They're teachers of the law, bringing light to the darkness and instructing the foolish in the ways of God. Now, at this point, we're probably thinking, I don't see a problem here. This sounds like people who take their faith seriously. And that's true, they did. Paul is addressing what we might call the religiously observant people. They're the kind of people you could find in every church on any given Sunday around the world to this day. Paul tells us in verse 18 that they are people who know God's will and approve what is excellent because they are instructed from the law. This is not the Easter and Christmas, you know, baptisms, weddings, and funerals crowd. This is the weekend week out folks who have been showing up forever. They teach Sunday school. They know their prayer book inside and out. They've probably memorized huge portions of the liturgy. They are good Christian folk. And so at this point, there's something we want to acknowledge here. When Paul is addressing the anticipated objections, the problem that he sees is not with the stuff that these objections are made of. What Paul is listing here are good things. Faithful Christians should be teachers of God's will. We, who are Christian, should be able to open the Bible and speak with more and more fluency about who Jesus is and what he has done as we grow in the faith. We should raise our children in the faith. We should reflect the light of Christ into the dark world so that the darkness is pushed back. We should claim the title of Christian and take joy in Christ. These things are excellent, as verse 18 puts it. They are in, in alignment with God's will. And so what's the problem? If the problem's not with the stuff that this portion of the church is grabbing hold of, what is it? Well, what's going on here is a bit like someone sitting down at their computer and getting frustrated because this thing isn't doing what it's supposed to do as if it has some kind of agency of its own. 
staring at your phone, right? What's wrong with this thing? It's not doing what I tell it to do. I'm sure none of us have had that experience. The problem isn't really the PC, though, is it? The problem isn't the thing. The problem is user error. You see, God's law is perfect. God's will is perfect. And so if teaching and worshiping and learning about Him and living for Him are all good, where's the problem? User error. The problem is with the operator. Paul is about to address this directly, but it's as if he is saying, all these excuses you're going to give me about how what I'm saying doesn't apply to you, you're all leaning on great things. They are wonderful things to bring up. If only they were true. If only your boasting in God wasn't bravado, as if the, the point was how wonderful you are, rather than how wonderful His grace is. If only what you claim to believe to be true was lived out beyond the 90 minutes you're at church on a Sunday. You see, friends, the problem with Christians is not the Bible. It's not the way of life that the Lord has laid out for us. It's not that some of us have been raised in the faith and some of us are brand new to it. It's the truth that people live double lives. Lives of religious purity on a Sunday and lives of worldly pursuit the six other days. These objections fall flat because we are not what we claim to be. In a word, we're hypocrites. Everyone. Every single one of us. Look at verse 21. You then, who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? Everything that this group is hiding behind is great on the surface, but that's the problem. All it is for them is surface. They know the will of God. They know the law of God. They know it's good. They're even willing to teach others that it's good, but they're unwilling to live it. The argument here is in line with what we heard last week where Paul made the case that if you actually lived out the law, what you claim to believe, you'd be just fine. If you could live out the will of God perfectly, you would be righteous. But there is no one who can honestly make that claim. Jew and Gentile, male and female, all races, ethnicities, even all religious backgrounds. All are united in common humanity and all are united in common fallenness. The problem here is the religious equivalent of trying to avoid the doctor by claiming the cancerous tumor of sin is simply a scratch. (laughs) 
It's the attempt that so many good Christian folks make to cover our sin with the thin veneer of religious behavior and religious language and religious lineage. We hear things like, oh, that, yeah, that stuff, that doesn't apply to me. I'm here every single Sunday. And you know what? I don't like to brag, but I don't tithe 10%. I tithe 15 You know what else? My great-great-grandparents, they founded this church. And my grandparents, they paid to have this church built. Now, none of those things are bad. As a simple statement of fact. But they are horrible as lines of defense against sin. And not only that, but Paul reminds us that relying on these things, they don't draw us closer to God, but give us an elevated sense of self. That's what he's talking about when he talks about boasting in God here. This isn't pointing at Jesus and saying, look at how incredible he is. It's boasting in, I'm a member of the church. It's boasting in yourself. We're the chosen. We know what's right. God is on our side, so you all just have to deal with it. Thank you very much. It's an understanding of the faith that leads to people actually doing wonderful things in these walls and then living something totally different the moment we leave. Singing God's praises for his love of the poor and the downtrodden while doing everything we can to make sure that those people never get to move into my neighborhood. Hearing and taking joy in the comfortable words of forgiveness while being completely unwilling to forgive anyone who has wronged us in the slightest possible way. And we see the result of that in verses 23 and 24. Boasting in the law and breaking it leads to God being dishonored and his name blasphemed among the Gentiles, or what we would call in our time the non-believer. Years ago, I was watching an interview with an actor and animator named Seth MacFarlane. He was asked, if you could meet God, what would you say to him? His response, sorry about all your followers. Now, is that an overblown sentiment? Yes, it is. Are statements like that often a veneer of their own to, ever, to avoid ever getting real about the serious questions of life? Yes, it is. But it captures a posture that many people who don't believe in Jesus have. That the problem really is how Christians seem to believe one thing and then live another. And yes, sometimes it's a smokescreen, but here Paul makes the same claim. When the things that we claim to hold dear in our faith are not present in our daily living, it impacts those around us. In almost every conversation I have with someone who doesn't believe in Jesus, when we talk about why they don't believe, it'll often start with some theological issue. Right? They'll come up with something. But the more that we get into it, the more we talk, the more it becomes clear, the problem isn't the theological question. 
The real problem is that they have had some kind of personal encounter with either the church at large or with an individual Christian that has deeply wounded them. And this was challenging enough in the pre-internet and pre-social media days, but now we can wound and shame people from all over the world from the comfort of our own couches. And so that's a challenge. The hypocrisy of Christians wounds those around us, and it leaves people wondering that if they claim this and live that, how real could their God be? And so if I'm not living up to the standard I claim, if I'm wounding others, if my hypocrisy has dishonored the name of Jesus, what am I supposed to do with that? Everyone has been a a hypocrite at some point in their lives. Not just Christians, everyone. But we're talking about Christians here. Where does this leave us? Well, friends, actually admitting our hypocrisy is a step towards the solution. Because Paul shows us that while our inclination might be to avoid confronting reality, presenting our objections at every turn, That will not solve our problem. We can only find the solution once we understand that the solution must be applied deep within us, below the surface. We can't be saved by the veneer of religiosity, not even by our knowledge of religious teaching or the reception of religious symbols and participation in religious activities. We need the change of heart that only the Spirit of God provides. And yes, He can work through all of those things I just listed. Those are good things. But if they remain on the outside of us and we are not changed from the inside, they will only ever be a veneer. Paul illustrates this for us using the chief religious symbol for the Jewish people of his time, circumcision. Circumcision was the mark of membership in the people of God. Anyone who was circumcised could rightly claim the title of Jew, but to make that claim, to grab hold of that title, was not enough. As Paul points out in verses 25 through 27, those who are circumcised and those who are not are equally capable of breaking or following the law. It's the continuation of the point that he made in chapter 1. That the reality of God and what is right and wrong can be known by all people. And so all people are just as capable of sin regardless of what group you are in and what markings you do or do not have. And so what is needed is not just an outward sign, but an inward grace. Verse 28. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. What does that mean? means to be truly a part of the people of God, the Spirit of God must do a work within us. Our hearts need to be changed so that we have genuine faith in Christ. So that all these things that we do and we participate in 
are not just simply religious boxes to check, but acts of genuine faith. Put another way, following Jesus is not about claiming a title or just going through the motions, but being changed by the Holy Spirit through faith to then live for Christ and by Christ. The truth is that every single one of us is sinful and fallen, and so we all need to have that heart change. We all need a a heart surgery, so to speak. Our hearts are bent inward, as Romans 2.8 tells us. We're self-seeking, and we live unrighteously. Because of that, the solution to our problem cannot be found in outward appearances and activities. The problem is far too serious for that. Jesus himself taught us that our our actions flow out of our hearts. And so if our actions are sinful, that indicates that there's something wrong within us. And until we acknowledge that, all the outward actions that we do, as good as they might be, will never be enough. And so the point here is not to leave us in despair. It's not to convince us that there's no hope at all, but to bring us to a place of honest acknowledgement, of being the man who finally acknowledges that his leg actually isn't supposed to bend that way. That is more than a scratch. He needs a doctor's help. Friends, every one of us needs a doctor's help. When faced with our sin, when faced with our hypocrisy, we're to acknowledge it and confess it and ask Jesus to forgive us and change us so that our lives would not be marked with hypocrisy or the veneer of religious behavior, but with genuine faith and love of God. We would be given the gift of a genuine faith. It's not an easy thing to ask for, I understand that. As anyone who has undergone surgery knows, it can be a scary thing. It can be painful. And it takes a long time to recover. And yet as anyone who has put off surgery knows, the alternative is far worse. It can be scary for us to acknowledge and confess our sins. No one likes to admit their own hypocrisy. I guarantee some of us, when I said everyone's a hypocrite, the first reaction was, not me. No one likes to acknowledge it. No one likes to admit that we sin. No one likes to admit that we can't save ourselves or we can't do enough things to make things right. And yet, just as we do with that surgeon, who removes the cancer that plagues our bodies. We must trust our hands, or trust the hands of our Lord, that by His Spirit, He would remove the cancer of sin from our hearts. In reflecting on this passage, the great Anglican theologian Ray Ortland Jr., he wrote this, Your touch, I know, Lord, will be painful. But my natural condition will kill me anyway. And so open me up. Take it out. I yearn to be rid of it all. 
and put a new nature in its place, a heart full of unfeigned, simple goodness. O God, cut it away and put it to death. Paul does not reveal the church's sin so that the people might feel despair and hopelessness. Friends, despair and hopelessness is the realm of sin, not the gospel. Paul presents the truth of our condition so that we might embrace our need and call out to God as Ortland wrote, asking him to cut away all that is sinful in us so that the sin itself might be put to death and that we might receive him who came to bring us life. For as we heard in our gospel reading today, it is in Christ and Christ alone that true life is found. And so it is by his spirit that we put away all our objections and the pretty little lies that we tell ourselves and receive the unending grace and forgiveness that gives us a life filled with his spirit. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.